Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AMFT podcast, we're talking about working with trans clients and family systems. Though there is an increasing awareness and tolerance around gender issues in certain segments of American culture, the truth is the level of misunderstanding, ignorance, and prejudice that surrounds gender nonconforming and trans people has led to what is paramount to a mental health crisis in our society. For these types of gender nonconforming individuals, the very nature of their sense of self lies in market conflict to society's gender identity, ideals, and social scripts. This resulting transphobia, whether explicit or covert, often manifests itself in forms of denial, invisibility, harassment, and bullying. Today, we are going to learn how to work with trans clients, especially if you yourself, as a systemic therapist, are not familiar uh, with the population. And we're going to do that with an expert, Dr. Deb Coolhart from Syracuse University. Deb is an LMFT with a private practice in Fayetteville, New York. She's a clinical fellow of the AAMFT, an improved supervisor. Previously, she was an assistant professor of community and human services at SUNY's Empire State College and a research health science specialist at the VA Medical Center in Syracuse. As an associate professor at Syracuse, Dr. Coolhart's scholarly interests include issues related to marginalized and queer experiences, relationships, and intersectionality with a particular focus on the clinical issues of trans people and their families. Her research and publications have focused on trans youth, their families, trans family support, LGBTQ homeless youth, and transsexuality. Her co-authored book, which she'll mention, The Gender Quest Workbook, a guide for teens and young adults exploring gender identity, has been translated into three languages and sold over 20,000 copies. I learned a lot in this interview. Hope you will too. And we'll be back after we speak to Deb. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So pleased to be joined by Deb Coolhart from Syracuse. And we're talking today about working with transgender youth and family systems, really any transgender client. It's a very important topic, one that I have gotten several emails about in the last couple of months. And we listen to the listeners on the show. So I can't wait to talk to Deb as she is a authority in this area and an LMFT and an improved supervisor. First question we always ask is how do you get interested in systems, family therapy in general, and then specifically working with transgender populations? Yeah. Getting interested in systems. While I was in college, I worked at a family respite center where families that had a lot of stressors in their lives could 
leave their kids for a few days. And we did a lot of therapeutic programming with them. A lot of the kids had challenging behaviors and we would make progress with them in the few days that they were there. And then they would go back to their families and go right back to their patterns, of course. So it was like clear to me at that point that it's important to intervene with more than just a kid, that a family system is really involved. And then when I read The Family Crucible by Napier and Whitaker, I just fell in love with the work. I was like, that is what I want to be doing. So that's really what led me to MFT. And then specifically my work with Q clients started right away in my training. As soon as I started seeing clients, I was also going through my own coming out process. So I identify on the spectrum as well. And I started volunteering with a local LGBT youth group. And the kids there were just amazing. They was over 20 years ago and was a different landscape politically at that time. And these kids were just so spunky and brave and I just really loved the work. So I started offering therapy for them, the kids that wanted it. And a lot of the kids that came to me were trans. And I didn't know a whole lot about trans experiences at the time. But what I learned really quickly was that Trans folks have this dependence on mental health professionals in order to get to the medical treatments that they need. So if they want to start hormones or get surgeries, they need letters of support from mental health professionals. And there wasn't really anybody in the area that was doing that work at the time. And so I, I saw the need in the community and started providing that service. And Trans people from four hours away, four hour radius, were calling me for therapy just because there weren't resources at the time. And so I didn't set out to specialize. It just happened. And I've really been focusing on trans folks and their systems for over 20 years, certainly the LGBT spectrum in general, but primarily trans folks. I really appreciate that personal story. And as most people have a passion for what they do and they have a personal connection to it. And very early on in your career, like you said, it didn't, you didn't plan it that way. It just found you. Also, you're not just a clinician, you're a scientist practitioner and a associate professor at Syracuse. So were you first interested clinically and then the research piece followed or like a practitioner scientist or how did your clinical interest in this impact your research interest? Yeah, absolutely. It started as a clinical interest. And then my early writing was not research-based. It was more clinically based. As I mentioned, that trans folks need these letters of support to get to their medical treatments. And so some of my early publications were on helping clinicians to get a grasp of that process. What kinds of questions would you want to ask if you're assessing clients for their readiness for medical transition. So a lot of my early writing was more clinically based. And then when I became a tenure track professor at Syracuse University, they're an R1 institution. Research was expected. And of course, that's where my interest was. I started doing a lot of different research in the area. Yeah, we're going to certainly talk about assessment and what you need to know. It's clearly in the scope of an MFT's practice to work with sexual and gender minority clients, but it might not be in their scope of competence. So we're going to talk about how to increase that today, but let's get some language first. Sometimes therapists that don't know can unintentionally offend or microaggress against a sexual and gender minority client. Give us some language to use and then what not to use. Yeah. So I think the first thing would just to be, to start becoming curious about how 
You are reinforcing a gender binary in the way that you talk, reinforcing heteronormative assumptions in the way you ask questions, making sure that you have multiple gender and sexual orientation categories like on intake paperwork. A lot of times we talk about, oh, the parents, the mother and the father. What if there's a non-binary parent? So really examining our language and how we really reinforce the binary. So that's like an overarching mission that we have to continue to be on as all of this stuff continues to evolve. But in terms of language, talk about trans people as to be trans means that the gender assigned at birth does not match the person's gender identity. So how they experience themselves internally does not match what they were assigned at birth. And with trans folks, a lot of them are binary trans folks. So for example, somebody might be assigned female at birth and identify as male internally, and then often they'll take steps to present more masculinely externally, and they want to be read as male. So that's like a binary trans experience moving from a binary gender to the other binary gender. And I think what we're seeing more and more of is folks that are really not identifying within the gender binary. So non-binary people have been around forever. They've identified as genderqueer, genderfluid, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of different labels, but they're collectively identifying more as non-binary now. So coming out in bigger numbers. And most non-binary people do consider themselves trans from my experience because they still fit that definition of, I don't identify with my assigned gender. So I was assigned female I don't identify with a female gender. I don't identify maybe with either gender, or they might identify as both, or they might be more fluid and feel more masculine some days and more feminine some days, but really challenging this gender binary that we so often just accept as truth. So you talked about languages to stay away from. So the term transsexual is becoming really outdated. There are some trans people that use it, but transsexual really is rooted in a pathology orientation. It's the medical term that was used to describe the disorder of this experience. And so it really has a yucky feel to it. So staying away from transsexual and really thinking about trans or transgender as an umbrella term. Sometimes we're talking about gender expansiveness. So maybe trans and gender expansive people. Yeah. So staying away from transsexual, that's a yucky word. So I think a lot of times what therapists needing us to expand their scope of confidence is just some vital info and psychoeducation every systemic therapist should know when starting to work with these client systems. So if you had to break down both probably the biggest misconceptions that it's hard to believe people in our field somehow still get confused about, like the idea of the difference between gender identity and sexuality. And sometimes even therapists that are not gender aware can have difficulty with that. So let's talk about a basic psychoeducation that you think every one of our listeners should have if they're wanting to build up their competency working with this population and then some of the myths that exist about a trans population. So there's a difference between gender identity and sexual orientation is what you were hinting at. So gender identity is how we feel about who we are internally, you know, how we identify as male, female, neither. And sexual orientation is more about who we're drawn to be in intimate romantic relationships with. So those are very different concepts. Trans people can identify as any sexuality. I think that was a historical myth that the only legitimate way to transition was if you were going to be heterosexual at the end of it, which is totally untrue. So a trans woman could identify as a lesbian, a bisexual, heterosexual, and then 
non-binary people, the terminology is interesting because they're saying I'm not on the binary. So that makes labeling a sexual orientation interesting because they don't have that male or female place to start from. So using words like heterosexual or gay might not really fit. So oftentimes non-binary people are identifying either more broadly as queer or Sometimes more specifically, I'm only attracted to trans people or I'm only attracted to feminine people. Another general myth, I hope that it's fairly well understood by this point, but it certainly isn't in our broader culture that this isn't a choice. This isn't something that's just a trend that's people are just doing this for attention. A lot of times parents and teachers will have concerns about all the kids are doing it now. Oh, it's because they started hanging out with other trans kids. So now they're identifying as trans. That often is very true that they find themselves through their friendships. They have this experience of self early on and they don't have language for it. So it's when they connect to others, when they can actually fight with the label. So it doesn't mean the trans identity just happened or that they it was contagious from their friends and things like that. That This is really, these are the same kinds of things we used to say about gay people. That was a choice. And now we're quite clear that it's just a natural variation of humanity. So I think that's an important foundation in terms of having an affirmative lens is understanding that this is just normal. This is just another form of normal. In terms of a general psychoeducation, in terms of what you should be aware of working with trans people, is that there's just a really general lack of knowledge information out there so people don't understand trans people i'll say i hear people say things like i just don't get it and it's so because of that trans people are questioned all the time they're invalidated all the time they're often not respected for who they say they are so really understanding that trans people have this really pervasive experience oftentimes of mistreatment, discrimination that is present in family systems, certainly, but in larger systems as well, uh, workplaces, schools, they're experiencing identity-related violence. And then it's also present in the mental and physical health systems. So a lot of times trans people will come in with horrific stories from other therapists they've been to, doctors that they've seen. So understanding that oftentimes people are coming in quite injured by sometimes people that are supposed to be there to help them. And having a level of mistrust is really common and normal. I think it's protective. If you're used to being mistreated, you probably should be a little bit on guard. So we as therapists really need to be overt about being affirmative therapists. And I think that we can do that by, as I said before, being inclusive on like intake forms, having cues in our offices that show that we're affirmative. So maybe books on the shelf that relate to LGBT topics or rainbow or trans paraphernalia around things that signal that we are affirmative. Because that's really important. Not all, many helpers are not affirmative. And so we really need to be overtly signaling that to our clients. And then I think like the other thing that's really important is that the things that buffer trans people the most around all these negative mental and physical health outcomes are supportive families. So when trans people have supportive families, they do better. It's not surprising. Parent accepts their child for who they are and they're going to do better mentally. But it also, the research really shows that it persists across the lifetime that trans adults also fare better when they have supportive family systems. So I think that is really crucial to MFTs 
were really needed in this area. When a person transitions, it affects every relationship that they have. And so really working with families that are struggling to adjust, that's ideal for MFTs to be in that role. I definitely have some questions and some scenarios when it comes to working with the whole family system. But let's just start with some general assessment issues. I imagine a client could come in where they clearly understand that they are struggling with their fit, but they may not be prepared yet to take, start taking hormones, think about surgical procedures. So let's just talk in general, you meet an individual client and this is the presenting issue. How do you assess? Where do you start? I think that you're right. So people come in with really varying senses of themselves in terms of how solid they're identifying. So some people are coming in questioning and other people are coming in so very clear and they just need that letter <laughs> so that they can get their treatment. And so those are really different kinds of cases. So folks that are coming in unclear, questioning, I think that it's about following the client's lead, listening, providing normalized options that, yeah, it's normal. Like it, lots of people feel this way. Lots of people feel like they don't fit in their assigned gender. So normalizing that and then following where they want to go. So dysphoria is that feeling that people have when their body doesn't match how they feel like it should or that they are not read as the gender that they feel that they are inside. So somebody reads me as male when rarely I'm female, that can cause dysphoria. For some trans folks, dysphoria is very high and extreme. And in those cases, we often find that there's a lot of mental health symptoms that go along with that because dysphoria is so distressing. And then in other cases, dysphoria is a little lower, like it's more mild. It's not so bothersome, which is great because maybe there's not as many mental health symptoms, but it also makes the path less clear. Like when someone's super dysphoric, they know what they need to do to feel better. When somebody's not as dysphoric, it's sometimes not as clear. And sometimes those folks need more time to figure it out and normalizing that there's no one path to transition that you don't even have to transition if you don't want to, that when you're ready and when you feel like you're gonna, you're ready to come out, maybe that's when you do it. So there's no shoulds in the process. There's no, oh, you first you do this and then you do this and then you do this. It's a really unique path for each person. And it's about just helping them navigate options and think about maybe ways to come out or helping them come up with plans around coming out. I find that sometimes trans people are like, I should talk to this person face to face. And I'm like, why should? And they said, it'll say things like, it just seems like I owe it to them to have a face to face conversation. And I'm asking like, is that best for you? It's really your process. And if you're going to feel safer by writing a letter, that's okay. So really navigating like different options. I sometimes think of myself in the passenger seat there in the driver's seat and I'm just, I've got the map and I'm like, we could take this route. We could take this route. So really listening, validating, normalizing, and encouraging people to find their own path that fits for them. I love how you said that. Now let's go to this other example that you said. Somebody's coming in. And it's very clear after a couple minutes with them, they're there because they want you to write a letter. They are not really interested in exploring their gender identity. They know who they are. 
They don't want a long-term relationship with the therapist. How do you handle a situation like that where it's clearly somebody is there to get a piece of documentation? That is absolutely perfectly fine. So I call that working through the readiness process. So I think about working with a client to make sure they've thought about all the things they should think about in order to make sure they're ready for whatever treatment it is that aiming for. So working through readiness is very different than engaging in therapy. You ask a lot of questions that as therapists, we can get nosy and we I always am advising my students, like, I know you're curious and you want to explore this clinically with this person, but this person is really just here for the letter. So you got to just focus on that process. So we got to pull back our therapist self and really help the client get get to their goal as soon as possible. And that's another thing that happens for a lot of trans clients is they get delayed. I've heard stories about, oh, I've seen one therapist and she said she'd write a letter. And then two years later, she told me she wouldn't write the letter. That's two years that person waited already to get their treatment that they need. So I really try to expedite that process as much as possible. I've been doing this work for over 20 years, so I can do it very quickly. I can do it in a session most of the time, especially when people come in very clear. They've already socially transitioned, so they're already using their name and their pronouns. They're already presenting the way that they want to. They just need the medical treatment to help them along with that process. And so I think the social transition is the really hard part. So for people that have already done that, it's of course you need this medical treatment. But I do have a published sort of tool in JMFT around the readiness process and how to assess that, what you should be asking about, lots and lots of questions to be asking about. Tell us just quickly those type of questions. If you've never worked with this population, but you want to, so I'm interested, those type of assessment questions. And then What goes in a good letter as you have written many of them? Sure. So I think the first piece that you want to get a picture of is like what this person's journey with gender has been like. So I'll often start with, tell me about your journey with gender. Like, when did you first know something was up with gender and what did you do with that? And having them sort of trace through the years their experiences. So maybe the early awareness was in childhood. But there was no access to language for that. Oftentimes people are confused or like trying to talk themselves out of it because they don't have a connection to that representation of their identity. So getting a sense about how their identity emerged and then how did they become solid in their identity. So I think the most common situation that I get are teenagers coming in who, when I talk with them about that, they have memories of earlier childhood, of hating to wear certain clothes or hating certain activities or hating to be considered a girl or things like that, but they didn't really understand why. And then it was when they got online, 11, 12 years old, when they get online and they start getting exposed to these different identities is when they start to actually identify. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think something we can do as a society is to increase representation of trans identities so that people can figure out who they are sooner. Oh, another piece when you're working with youth is that parents have to be on board. Parents will have to consent for the medical treatment. So oftentimes we get kids that come in that are very solid in their identity, but parents that are not ready. So oftentimes as family therapists, we're doing a lot more work with the parents than we are with the kid. So we have to assess that family attunement and see what the level of support is. And if that's an obstacle, then we need to be working with that. I think we're also assessing for what's going on in other environments. Are there other challenges that are happening? Have Has the person come out at school or at work yet? And what might be an obstacle there? 
helping them navigate. Because sometimes we get people that haven't socially transitioned yet, haven't come out yet, and then they're wanting to start testosterone. And so testosterone is powerful. It causes changes relatively fast. And once your voice drops and you have facial hair, you can't really not come out. (laughs) So helping people navigate how to engage in that kind of process. And then for the letters of support, generally... It's an overview of the person's journey, a brief. It just needs to be a handful of sentences of like early awareness or whenever their first awareness was, how they made sense of that, and then how they came to the identity. Something about the dysphoria that they experience and how the particular treatment that they're seeking, so hormones or surgery, will help with that. If it's a youth indicating that the parent is supportive. And then another piece of the assessment is around mental health challenges. So being aware of, and it's really common for people to have mental health symptoms. Dysphoria, as I said, is very distressing. So I think most of the people I work with have depression and anxiety. That's not a contraindication for hormones or surgeries. In fact, I often get asked the question, so if the person has a mental health challenge, which one do we treat first? The answer is both. Treat both. They're connected. When people can reduce their dysphoria through hormones, surgeries, et cetera, their mental health symptoms tend to get better. So it's about treating both at the same time. Please do not put off treating dysphoria until their mental health is stable. That's not an approach that makes sense. And so when we want to find out about their mental health history, and if there's some significant history, we might want to talk about that a little bit in the letter. I really think about is this relevant to the physician that's prescribing? If they had some depression 15 years ago before they came out, never since they came out, it's been really good and they haven't needed treatment or medication. I consider that not really a significant mental health history. But say we have like recent suicide attempts, we may want to be mentioning that in the letter so that you know, our collaborating providers also know like the stress that this person is under. I think, too, with hormones, it can cause some change in emotionality. So people that start testosterone will often describe feeling like it's easier to compartmentalize emotion. They don't feel as sad about things anymore, or maybe they get upset about something, but then they just get over it. They don't carry it throughout the day and throughout the week. However, they sometimes indicate that there's, instead of that sadness, they might go quicker to aggression or something like that. So. If they have, say, anger management issues, if that's a mental health challenge and they're starting testosterone, that would be something to mention in a letter because theoretically testosterone could make anger management issues more difficult to manage. But like I said, usually what we see is um, when dysphoria gets better, mental health gets better too. And then on the other side of that, estrogen oftentimes will make people more emotional. So it'll describe having access to a wider range of emotions, being giggly and giddy about something, and then turning on a commercial and crying. It's that feminizing puberty that can be a little overwhelming at first, um, but it's puberty. So that you get used to it and you learn how to manage yourself. So if we have somebody who's dealing with like really pervasive depression and we're starting them on estrogen, that might be something that we want to include in a letter. And maybe either one of these issues, anger management with testosterone or depression with estrogen, we might encourage them to stay in therapy for a bit while they're making that adjustment to hormones. When the family is ambivalent, but the client is of age, even if they're still a late teenager, emerging adult, 
Do you need to document the external support in the letter? So if the family says, hey, you can do what you want, but we're not there yet. We don't support it. Should something like that be documented in a letter or no? Yeah, I usually make a general statement of support. If there's not family support, is there other support? A lot of times people in those situations will be connected to other LGBT folks that they experience as supportive. I think it's most important when a person is seeking surgery, they need somebody that's going to help them with the aftercare of surgery. If it's not a parent, like who is that? That's something surgeons will want to know that aftercare support is set up. So if you're working with a client who doesn't have that lined up, we might be working with them to increase their support systems around them, connecting them to groups and things like that, where they can start to meet people that can support who they are. I've had some fairly powerful experiences working on a family level with trans clients in the last couple of years. One I'll share and get your opinion on. So this was a young person, 14, 15, and they knew for the longest time they did not fit in who they were. So they also knew their parents would never accept it. So the presenting problem was a typical is internalizing grades were bad depressed but it became very clear that it, this person they wanted to transition and they had built a community of friends and even best friends parents who she started to live with and became their fictive family but the parents were adamant and they could never accept it so i think what we see that a lot as family therapists where the person knows who they are and they have a support network, but it's not their parents. So you were talking about that fictive network and that support group. How do we work with parents to move them towards acceptance of who their son and daughter truly is? So sometimes those parents are not willing to engage, which then we find ourselves supporting the youth through surviving until they're old enough to make their own decisions. And then other times the parents will engage at least somewhat. And I think that we can't always move every family to this place of full support and celebration of their wonderful queer child, unfortunately. So even if we can help parents to make these baby steps that can help kids feel better. I had a dad who came in for one session and was like, this is crazy. Kids think they can just choose their gender. Like, I'm never going to call her a boy. That's crazy. And as I was speaking with him, it was like, oh gosh, this person is way far away from where the kid needs them to be. So I was working on baby steps. I had to find some common ground with him. I said, okay, I, I hear you that you're not ready to see your child for who they say they are, but I'm concerned about your kid. They're doing poorly in school. They used to be a really strong student. They have had all kinds of suicidal ideation. Those things worry me. And the dad says, yeah, I, I worried about that too. And I was like, okay, good. And there's a lot of research on parental support being tied to better outcomes, mental health outcomes. I talked with him about that. It, it really looks like kids do better if their parents are supportive. And I hear you that you're not there, but I wonder about maybe stopping doing some of these behaviors that are intentionally harming your child. And so as I was talking to this dad, I didn't use pronouns. I didn't use a name. I just would say your child, they, so that the dad wasn't feeling like, I didn't want to use the child's birth pronouns and disrespect the child's identity. But if I use the child's 
actual pronouns, the dad would have been turned off or and not engaged. And so I said to the dad, I said, I don't know if you've noticed I haven't used like your kid's name or gendered pronouns as I've been talking to you. And he's like, yeah, I did notice that. And I was like, I wonder if what that would be like for you to do at home. And I saw him be contemplative about that because beforehand he was being very overtly non-affirming, enforcing the child's birth name and all of that stuff. That dad walked away and I didn't know how it went. And when I saw the kid later, he said, dad's just not calling me anything anymore. He's like, this one over here wants pizza. Even just that baby step helped the kid to not feel so dysphoric with the dad. And eventually in that family, the mom was very supportive and the dad kind of threw his hands up and said, you know what? I, everyone else seems on board with this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna not be involved. And so that kid was able to get hormones eventually. And then sometimes in other families, we have parents that will be supportive of the name and pronouns, but not of medical transition, which the name and pronouns part is wonderful that they're trying to respect their child's sense of gender. But then the physical dysphoria doesn't get treated. And so sometimes with those families, we're able to over time make some progress. And I think that the thing I think makes the biggest difference is the parents seeing how much pain their child is in over all this time. I've got a family right now that feel like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them and that their child is trans. And I've worked with the kid for probably nine months where they're just sobbing every session because it's just the dysphoria is so intense. And after nine months or so, the parents let them start hormones, even though they weren't quite on board yet, just because their child had been hospitalized like three times in that nine months. So that level of pain can help parents move forward. But sometimes we get parents that just don't. I worked with a family for quite some time and the parents came around to use the kid's chosen name and pronouns, but absolutely would not support medical transition. And eventually, and at the time, I think the kid was maybe 15. And so they dropped out of therapy eventually. And then as soon as the kid turned 18, I get a call from him and says, hey, can I get the letter? So sometimes it's about helping kids just survive through until they're 18 and they can make their own decisions. Another constraint, let's say they have emotional and moral support from their network, family and friends, but financially, they want to transition, move forward, but this is an expensive process. How do you deal with helping a client deal with the financial realities of transitioning? Yeah. From my experience, hormones generally do get covered by insurances, and even if they're not terribly expensive. So hormones is usually something that people can access, but certainly the surgeries, there's a lot of variation there. So it's sometimes just not financially possible for people. So it's about helping clients to accept or make choices about how they want to structure their lives. I have clients that are maybe, let's say, 30-ish. And instead of having a house, they've saved up all these years for surgery. So their life trajectories look differently because of the financial heaviness of some of these treatments. And then for other people, it might be about helping them to self-advocate with their insurance companies. So there are insur insurance companies are covering surgeries more and more often. My experience has been that it hasn't been easy for, even though it's possible for it to get covered, it's not like you just submit the claim and it's poof, magically covered. There's a battle that has to go on. So sometimes with this population, I really find myself advocating outside of the therapy room sometimes or helping clients to figure out how to advocate for themselves. I'll say, get a copy of the written policy so we can actually look at what the 
policy says so we know how to language things. Sometimes the insurance companies are saying that's a plastic surgery, so we don't cover it. This isn't a plastic surgery. This is a gender-affirming surgery. So it might be about how we language things in a letter. Another thing that they often really want you to say is that it's medically necessary. Now, as an MFT, I don't feel like that's language that is ethical for me to use, but I certainly can talk about how dysphoria causes mental health symptoms and that, you know, that this particular treatment is going to likely help with dysphoria, thus reduce mental health symptoms, and then help clients advocate with their doctors so that their maybe their hormone doctor can write a letter for the surgery or maybe a general doctor. Yeah. So helping them navigate the challenges of the system. Yes. And you speak to something very important. We think of advocating as therapist on the micro level for the client with their family or significant others. But what do we need to do as a profession? Two-part question. What do we need to do as a profession, as the AMFT, the National Association, to advocate on the more macro level of the importance with providers, insurance companies of covering gender-affirming procedures like this? And then what do we need to do better? Because we're both clinical trainers and work in accredited programs, accredited programs, both in schools of social work that has a more of a tradition of this policy level and macro advocacy. What do we need to do in our training programs to better prepare our MFTs and of tomorrow, next generation family therapists to work with trans populations? A lot. I think that our field in general is way far behind other mental health fields. MFT does not have a clear statement about gender affirmative care, whereas like psychology has a huge document about what gender affirmative care means, and that's what's expected. We don't require our programs to teach about it. There's lots and lots of MFT programs that do not touch the topic. We have instructors in our programs that are not aware. And so they're, I hear this from the MFT students who identify as trans, that they're in programs where they're feeling like there's all kinds of transphobia within the MFT program. So I think we need to look at our own <laughs> our own family system, if you will, and really work on improving that first. We need to be incorporating gender diverse gender diversity into our curriculum, not just in diversity class, but woven throughout the curriculum. So, for example, I teach sexual issues class in, in the Syracuse University's program, which is basically sex therapy 101. And traditionally, that topic has been, if you look at the textbooks that are out there, mostly like it's cisgender heterosexual experiences. So really making sure that we're infusing trans and larger LGBT sexuality into our sex curriculum. And so being thoughtful about where does this fit, using examples in cases that aren't all cisgender heterosexual. So really being thoughtful about how we need to be normalizing trans experiences and decentering cisgender and heterosexual narratives so that everybody sees themselves included. And that's not happening. It's happening in some programs, but I don't know that it's happening in the majority of programs. So I think we really need to do that. I don't know what I'd say about the larger systemic advocacy. I think most of what I'm working with my clients, you were saying at, at the micro level with families that I'm often advocating, like it's common for me to talk to school counselors about specific problems. That right now, kids have gone back to school after being remote for a year plus, and a lot happened for some trans kids during that time. So they're reemerging into the school environment with a new identity 
and having a hard time. I have a kid who had to go a transmasculine youth, so somebody who's identifying as male. They put him in the male locker room, and there was 15 upperclassmen laughing and talking about him, and the teacher was right there. <laughs> and obviously, this was horrific for the kid, not just emotionally, but he felt physically unsafe. And so I was like, he needs to not go back to that gym class like ever again. Like that needs to be changed. And so I was quickly like communicating with the hormone doctor saying, hey, can you write him a note to take him out of class? I was on the phone with the school counselor. What can we do? What kind of options are there? How can we get this kid to not have to experience that again. This kid also was experienced kids in the lunchroom and everywhere else in the school, like taking pictures of him and then posting them on social media. So sometimes that's too big of an issue for that kid to handle on his own. And I feel like sometimes providers, we have more power. And so it can be more powerful if we can intervene and advocate in these systems where people are experiencing mistreatment. So well said. I could hear your passion in your voice and we need more Dev Coolhearts out there. The other thing, why this is important to listen to this, I mean, if you're in an area where there's a lot of therapists identifying as there's some specialty working with this population, it's great. But you may be in an area where you are the only LMFT or you're the only person. So increasing your knowledge, learning to build your scope of competence to work with trans clients and their families is so important. So I learned so much today, Deb. If people want to continue the dialogue with you, what is the best way to... I could be reached via email, dcle at syr.edu. I have a, a training through PESI Incorporated on working with LGBT youth and their families, an eight-hour training, which is available online. I also co-authored the Gender Quest workbook. It's a workbook that you could use with a client who's exploring it, and it could give you like simplistic language to talk about these complex topics and to work through some activities with clients to help them figure out where they land and what they need. I also think that so Colt Keomeyer and Diane Aronsaft have a really wonderful edited book about the gender affirmative model, which is a very comprehensive text to address the issues involved in working with youth and families. So those are some of the resources that I would point to. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast, where we strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. Certainly an innovator in working with trans issues. Deb Coolhart, thank you so much. AMFT has you covered we often talk about if you listen to this podcast and you want to get more involved with topical interest networks, AMFT puts the power in your hands. You decide what areas of systemic therapy you want to be involved in. So if you don't know about our topical interest networks, you can check out some past episodes of the podcast or you can just go to amft.org and you go under engage and network. There you see Topical Interest Networks. Scroll down and you'll see the Queer and Trans Advocacy Network. The mission of the Queer and Trans Advocacy Network is to connect AMFT members who are interested in and passionate about sexual and gender minority issues. Members may identify as SGM, work with SGM clients, or simply want to know about sexual and gender minority health and well-being mission is to increase professional competency 
to better serve all SGM clients, to create a professional network and enable peer support. And as a member, you get a dedicated discussion forum, a website offering professional resources, training consultation, best practices, quarterly webinars that focus on clinical practice with queer and trans populations, and advocacy efforts to address legislation improving queer and trans well-being at both state and national levels. So important, easy to join, whether you're in the middle of your membership cycle or whether you just heard this today and were spurred on to more. I would also like to point out something that AMFT is very proud of in this year of 222, and that's the clinical guidelines for LGBTQIA affirming marriage and family therapy, a great document which anybody can download straight from amft.org with some great group of people that drafted this document, including a former guest on the show like Erica Hartwell, Chris Bellows, and we have the rest of the group, and Marky Twist, also been a guest on the show, other authors of this document, Kristen Benson, Livingston Cox, Alex Iantafi, and Christy McGeorge, as well as Darren Shipman. You can download the PDF, Guidelines for Clinical Practice with LGBTQIA Clients, based on five pillars. Pillar one, intersectional. Pillar two, systemic. Pillar three, relational. Pillar four, liberatory. And pillar five, transformative. We're interested in you, the listener has to say. Please, follow us on Twitter. AMFT is at the AAMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Drop me a line. Eli at North Star Counseling Center. I'm also at www.elikaram.com, elikaram.com. Please check us out wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts, but you can find us uh, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Please leave a star rating and a review to help us rise up the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Four seasons of back installments there if you're just discovering us or if you've been a listener from the start we thank you for the support until next time my friends stay safe stay systemic